Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 230. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, these certainly are interesting times that we're living in. We are um, undertaking two studies uh, at the same time. During these Live Internet Studies, we're studying about eschatology, biblical study of end-time events, and we're also looking at a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. And as I was chatting with my uh, good study buddy and friend in the um, live uh, Skype uh, room right now, just before the class. It's interesting that even though the topics may seem like they're not related to one another, sooner or later, it's I'm of the opinion that the issues that we're dealing with in the Trinitarian study, where we're talking about attacks on the Trinitarian biblical aspect of God, as is described in the Bible, as is demonstrated by um, key passages and things like that, sooner or later that seems to be a point that will be highly uh, displayed or uh, we will have um, a, a way to watch this in action when the Antichrist comes to power in the world. We know that the Antichrist opposes Christ and he seeks to replace Christ. His, his name Anti carries both of those aspects in place of and in opposition to. And we also know from reading passages that mention the word Antichrist specifically in the New Testament that use that word Antichrist, for instance, John's smaller letters, that the spirit of Antichrist includes a rejection of the incarnation, a rejection of the identity of God as one God and three persons, and, and instead embraces some form of a single-person God, uh, a, a single-identity God. So, thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us as the, the one true God, and yet the Bible clearly demonstrates the, that there's more than one person. And so we embrace you, Lord, for who you are, even if we can't understand it fully, even if it stretches our understanding of um, what we think you should be. So thank you for the opportunity to, to study through these topics. I pray that you'll continue to give us an understanding and draw us into a place where we are better prepared as a result of the study and as a result of the careful consideration that it takes to work through these issues. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of shame Yeshua. Amen. Okay, let's jump into the study uh Eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi. And as always, as you can see on your screen, just real quick, we're in topic number seven, the highlighted part excursus, the Islamic Antichrist per Joel Richardson. We're borrowing the notes that are available online for free. This is a book that he wrote, and you can, of course, buy it at Amazon.com if you'd like to support Mr. Richardson's ministry. And yet, in his generosity, has made it available for free at his own website, as well as free at the alternate resources that deal with this type of topic, topic like, say, Islamic, um, uh, what do we say, um, evangelism and things like that. So we're borrowing the notes from one of those resources. But in case you didn't know, look in the description of the videos for my eschatology series, and I've listed descriptions, I've listed links to those resources in the description. So without further ado, we are now ready to begin talking about this topic about the Mahdi, 
and the attack of Jerusalem and the establishment of the Islamic, Islamic Caliphate from Jerusalem. Just a brief refresher. Remember, I'll only take like 30 seconds to do this or so. The Bible describes three main end times figures, and this parallels the Quran and Islamic writings like the Hadith. This it parallels their description and prediction of three main figures that are also supposed to hit the scene. I'll put a little graphic on the screen in post-production so you can see this. I believe on the left side of the screen will be the Islamic figures, and on the right side of the screen I believe will be the biblical figures, if I remember correctly. But we have the Islamic Mahdi, which is a, a kind of a good guy uh, in Islamic prophecy. And he's a leader, and he's a religious leader. He's a um, someone who is supposedly chosen by Allah to come to earth and establish worldwide Islam. And his parallel in biblical prophecy is actually the Antichrist, which to Bible students is a bad guy. He's not a good guy. Now we already know that the world will be deceived in thinking that he's a good guy, a man of peace, and he will appear so for a good short time. A good short time? That's kind of an oxymoron. A, um, a short amount of time, but it will be very significant is what I'm trying to convey. And yet, he's so he's a bad guy. Going back over to the Islamic model, or the Islamic side of the discussion, we have an, a second figure that shows up on the scene in the end, end of days, and he is the Muslim Jesus. He goes by the name Isa, which is Arabic for Jesus, and he's also a good guy. Uh, Muslims are looking forward to his return. His description is similar to the Jesus of the Bible, and yet he's decidedly stripped of his divinity. He's stripped of his atoning power on the cross, meaning he didn't die for the sins of humanity, etc., etc. So he's still a great prophet. He's still a good teacher, but he is subordinate to the Mahdi. He's going to be kind of a junior, and uh, that's the, one of the characters that shows up in the end of days. His parallel in biblical. In, in biblical prophecy, surprisingly, is not Jesus Christ himself. Instead, the parallel to the Islamic Jesus is the false prophet mentioned in the book of Revelation. That's that's the one-to-one -one correlation there. And then the last figure who's going to show up on the scene, that we're, and we're not really talking about these last two, we're only talking mainly about this first one, this Mahdi. But the final figure that shows up in Islam he is a figure by the known by the name uh, or known as the Dajjal, and he's the bad guy. He's the villain of the piece, right? He's the antagonist. He's the one that's going to do battle against the first two characters that are mentioned in Islam, and his one-to-one -one parallel counterpart in biblical prophecy is Jesus Himself, Yeshua. Yeah. So this is where it gets really upsetting for people who study prophecy. And it's really going to be um, disappointing for Muslims when that day comes, because they, in their view, this this Dajjal character, who's a bad guy, turns out to be a parallel to Jesus. And in fact, even in Islamic prophecy, this Dajjal claims to be Jesus and claims to follow Christianity and and wins a lot of Christians and Jews over to his brand of religion, which is not Islam, which according to Islam is a false religion, right? A competitive religion, but it's not true religion. Remember, this is the Islamic perspective of this bad character, this 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 enemy of of Allah, etc., etc. And so the da really dangerous and sad part is that because when Yeshua, who is the biblical counterpart to the to the Dajjal, when Yeshua actually does show up, many Muslims are have, are already kind of prepped 
to reject him as a bad guy just right out of the gate because of the deception that Antichrist or that uh, Satan is using to, to pull, uh, pull the wool over their eyes using the tool known as Islam itself. So this is the topic that we're talking about. Again, remember, this is not a slam on Islam, nor some complete expose or some kind of review of Islam or any, anything like that. It's not an attack on Muslims as a whole or anything like that. We're just looking at this model of Antichrist through the lens of the uh, Islamic picture that's painted by not just Joel Richardson. He's not the only one that embraces this particular model, but he's the one, one of the more prominent teachers, uh, vocal voices. So here we go. Mr. Richardson's book, The Mahdi's Attack of Jerusalem and the Establishment of the Islamic Caliphate from Jerusalem. So we know that, biblically speaking, not just from Islam's prophecies, but from the Bible itself, the Antichrist will one day establish Jerusalem as one of his headquarters, if not the main headquarter there in the Middle East, for at least a short time period. So let's read about those details. Likewise, the Mahdi is said to attack Jerusalem and reconquer it for Islam in order that the new Islamic rule over the earth will be established from Jerusalem. And again, as I interject, I find this kind of interesting yet slightly disturbing that Islam could possibly play the part that the Antichrist needs to bring in this great deception that's going to sweep across the earth at the end of time where there will be unified religion or unified government, unified politics, etc. One world government, one world religion, you know, the new world order that we're describing. Islam for a while could very well be that tool that Satan uses to usher in many of his own agendas, which are decidedly anti-God, anti-biblical, anti-Christian, anti-Jewish, right? Uh, Anti-Semitic as well. And yet, the truth of the matter that the Bible establishes is that one day the true Messiah will rule from planet Earth, but from Jerusalem. He will also establish his rulership, his throne in Jerusalem. So, the devil has borrowed the, many of the themes and concepts and details from the Bible, turned them on their head in this great deception and great lie to deceive those of wicked humanity and rebellious humanity who have aligned themselves in a place where they are rejecting God and rejecting God's truth of the Bible and rejecting God's Messiah. Uh, they're setting themselves up unwittingly to receive the lies of Satan that have been put forth over and over again and yet are going to come to their fullness in the end of days. So let's read this quote from within Mr. Richardson's book. I believe it's a quote from probably an Islamic resource. Uh, it reads, quote, armies carrying black flags. Uh, come will come from uh, Iran or uh, Khurasan. No power will be able to stop them, and they will finally reach El Ila, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, where they will erect their flags. And if I look at that footnote, I think it is from an Islamic source. I'm quite certain. It might even be the Quran or one of the Hadith 
uh, writings. So let's keep reading this quote within Joel Richardson's book. Jerusalem, it says, will be the location of the rightly guided caliphate and the center of Islamic rule, which will be headed by Imam al-Mahdi. Remember, the Mahdi, one of his nicknames as a religious figure, is the 12th Imam. So this is just the expectation from within a, a good section or segment of Islamic religious and devoted Muslims uh, theology. So eschatology is going in that direction. And as we're gonna as we've already seen it will continue to see, it is very unfortunate that that brand of eschatology within Islamic circles as it reaches very concentrated kind of what I might label as devoted or radicalized Muslim opinions tends to always end up being not just anti-God and anti-Christian, but it also ends up being anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic. So isn't it just like the spirit of Satan to level his hate against God, against God's Messiah, against God's truth of the Bible? And then when it comes to people groups, to level his intense wrath against Israel and her offspring, like we read in Revelation chapter 12, the offspring who uh, name the name of Yeshua as their Lord and hold to the commandments of God. So that's, that's the position that we're looking at is not just Christians, but as Jews. And so we can see that, isn't that interesting that this type of poison is already brewing in Islamic theology and many Muslims, many peace-loving Muslims the world over are probably not even aware that that type of sentiment exists in their eschatology. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. Also, Joel says, as we just saw in the section above, the Mahdi will not end his campaign against Jerusalem in a peaceful way. For the Jews, the Islamic version of the last days ends with the last few surviving Jews hiding behind rocks or trees from the sword of Islam. We already know from history that this has been kind of almost like tested out where Islam uh, down through the centuries has forcibly converted people, you know, convert to Islam or die. And so that type of conquest and, and expansion of their empire and their caliphate has not been something that has been hidden from history. So it's already been done before. Why not reuse it? You know, Satan likes to reuse programs that wicked rulers and kings have done in the past for his own agenda. So why, why should this be any different? Joel Richardson continues, the military campaign against Jerusalem and the establishment of the Islamic Caliphate there likewise will not result in a benevolent rule over the Jews by the Mahdi. For as we've already seen, the last quote above continues, and so now he's going to pull a quote uh, from that same resource. And here's the rest of that quote, picking up the thought again. That will abolish the leadership of the Jews and put an end to the domination of the Satans who spit evil into people and cause corruption in the earth. And again, we're seeing how disturbing that kind of prophetic or sentiment is if you're a Christian and someone who 
loves Israel and supports Israel and believes that Israel has a prominent place in God's timetable in the end of days. And of course, if you're Jewish or especially if you're an Israeli living in the land of Israel, living near Jerusalem, those words that I just read should be uh, very shocking and disturbing to you. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. He says, in relation to the above tack against the inhabitants of Israel, there's quite interestingly another very specific correlation between the actors of the Mahdi and the actions of the biblical Antichrist. Remember, as I mentioned earlier, the one-to-one parallel between this figure known as the Mahdi, a religious figure, and yet still a leader by his own right in Islam, but not necessarily, I think, not necessarily a political or military genius. I'm, I, I'm not 100% certain. I'm, I'm not a specialist in Islamic eschatology, but from what I've gleaned from the, the amount of research that it takes to put these studies together, um, I believe that uh, he's more of a religious figure, but when we're looking at the Antichrist, the Biblical Antichrist has his foothold not just in religion, at least temporarily as a tool, as far as it will uh, further his agenda. In other words, he's going to throw it off halfway through the 70th week of Daniel. But for the Antichrist, primarily the Antichrist has a lot of interest in military weapons, in military campaigns, in dominating areas, using his military might, and also he seems to have a heavy hand in politics at the end of the day, when it comes time for him to influence people groups and leaders and kings and and presidents and prime ministers, etc. He's going to have this supernatural ability to persuade people with half truths, half lies, with you know convincing persuasive speech empty promises etc etc so joel richardson begins to he's going to start unpacking some of these details for us i believe if i remember from when i read this earlier he talks about the parallels between these two figures mahdi and antichrist and he continues by saying while the similarities between the antichrist and the mahdi that we have already discussed are quite astonishing He says, I believe that the specificity of this next parallel is just simply incredible. So let's begin to unpack some more details where there are parallels between the Islamic model of end times, the Islamic descriptions and expectations of their eschatology model, and the biblical model or biblical descriptions and details given in end time prophecies and eschatology as a whole so we have this topic now labeled the antichrist's seven year treaty with israel and of course this is going to carry us right back into daniel again all right which of course we prepped for months ago all right let's read Richardson. he says after rising to power and as a prelude to his invasion of israel the antichrist is said to initiate a treaty with the nation of Israel for seven years. So of course, this is biblical truth that we believe is trustable, reliable. Let's read the Bible. Quote, this is Daniel. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. This is Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 20. 
24, 25, 26, starting around verse 24, 25, some if I remember. He'll confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. And of course, these words are echoed by our Lord Yeshua in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. Daniel continues, after he sets up this abomination and causes desolation, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Daniel 9.27. So I said it was 24, 25, 26. Turns out it's the very last verse. Now, what can we glean from this passage in the book of Daniel. Let's let Mr. Richardson add his own comments. In context, Joel says, this verse shows us that the Antichrist will establish a quote-unquote covenant with Israel for seven years. Now, that's according to most biblical prophecy experts looking at the Hebrew behind what Daniel talked about and gaining the context from not just Daniel, but substantiated by other scriptures that there's this final period of history that is intensely focused on allowing evil, wicked humanity, and rebellious humans to be fooled by the figure known as Antichrist and his false messiah, led by Satan, of course. And all of these events will transpire within a seven-year time frame. And the seven years itself is divided, I'll put a little graphic on the screen so you can see this, the seven years itself is divided into three and a half and three and a half years. 1260 days times two, uh, 42 months times two, times, times, and half a times, multiplied times two. Thus, we get to seven years, or the 70th week, which seems to make a lot of sense because Daniel already prophesied earlier in 924 through 27, or, or earlier on, if you were to go back up into your own Bible and read the first verses, he's been told by the angel that 70 weeks, 77s are decreed upon your people. And then given all of the details that are spelled out in this prophecy, there's no way that they could really be seven literal weeks. The time frame is much too short for all of these events to transpire. Thus, Bible teachers have looked at this word seven and realized that it is a unit of seven that has to be determined from context. And the best model, the best contextual description is the 70 years of seven, uh, 70 sets of seven years. Like I said, it could be seven weeks, could be seven months, could be seven something, seven cycles of seven, seven sabbaticals, seven Shemitah years, etc., etc. But uh, 70 sevens of seven years, 70 years, so 490 years in total seems to be the best way to understand that. So Joel's going to continue to look at how that in Islam, there is this eerie parallel between the Bible's seven-year prediction of what's going to happen and Islam itself. I believe that, if I remember, I'm spoiling it for you, so just plug your ears if you don't want to hear. I believe that the reason there's that parallel is because when Muhammad compiled the Quran and later on the Hadith was formed as well, that there was this direct borrowing of details from the Bible which is why we have some of the parallels that exist. It wasn't just coincidence. It wasn't that just that Satan was whispering into the ear of, of Muhammad during those times and, and rattling off scripture. I mean, that, that, that did take place. 
and yet they thought it was an angel, right? Go figure. Gabriel. Yet, what we know is that, if I remember, Muhammad was illiterate, and yet he borrowed what he remembered from parts of the Bible. In fact, one part of the Islamic prophecies, if I remember, directly even mentions the book of Revelation. All right, let's, so let's read uh, Mr. Richardson's notes on this. So talking about these seven years for Israel, he reminds us that the specific Hebrew word used in this verse that is translated merely as seven is Shavua. And I confirm that as someone who can read the original Hebrew. Yes, it is Shavua. And this word Shavua literally means a week, but can either can but can mean either a week of days or a week of years. It just means seven. And it is the word that we say in Hebrew for week. The plural would be Shavuot. You're familiar with that particular festival in Judaism. Shavuot means the weeks, literally means weeks as in plural. Shavu plus the suffix ot pronounced ot, not ot. Shavuot coming from the root word Shavua, like Mr. Richardson just mentioned. So he continues. He says, in Hebrew thought, a seven-year period is similar to our decade in English, the way we kind of interact with a unit of time that is easy to describe because of its compact uh, compact representation and the way our numbers in, in English are broken down into units of 10 conveniently. We use tens, uh, we use units of 60 for our times, right? 60 seconds, 60 minutes, 60 seconds in an hour, 60, I'm sorry, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour. And then we also have units of 10, right? Which are easily break, making, make up our uh, counting system. 10 tens equals 100, 100 tens equals 1,000, and we keep going like that. Well, in, Israel, in Hebraic thought, sevens is a very convenient way to break down certain time frames. So he goes on to say that we in the West tend to measure years through a decimal system based of increments of tens. If I would just read him instead of going ahead, we would see this. He goes on to say that while we measure days, in terms of seven, i.e. a week. So that's uh, where we get the biblical week is from the Bible. It's, it's where we get our own week. I believe it's directly from the Bible. So he continues, the Hebrews measured both days and years in increments of seven. The word translated as seven in Daniel 9.27 that we just read is referring to seven years. This is, he says, the specific amount of time that the Antichrist will set for his peace treaty with Israel. And I might add, it's it's entirely possible that when the time comes when the Antichrist announces his dealings with Israel and her hostile neighbors so that he can formulate some form of non-aggressive pact treaty or whatever agreement, you know, stop firing at each other, stop shooting bombs at each other, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And, oh, by the way, um, Israel, you're allowed to build some form of holy edifice on top of the current Temple Mount, which is currently occupied by two Islamic holy shrines. Um, when this announcement is made to the world, I'm of the impression that it doesn't necessarily have to come with the specifics that it's seven years. That might be need-to-know information at the time. It might be right on the headlines. Seven-year peace treaty with Israel. I mean, boy, if that does happen, if it's that simple, I think even your pathetic prophet types, right? You don't have to be prophetic. You can be pathetic and still realize that the end times is unfolding right before our eyes. And yet, what if 
the headlines aren't even there. We just see this kind of deal that takes place behind closed doors with those who are in a need-to-know position. And yet, for the Antichrist, maybe the seven-year represents some form of trial period. In his mind, he might be thinking, this is just the initiation. This is just the kickoff time period. Because he really knows that he's going to upset the terms and renege on his part halfway through. Or he may not know that it's halfway through that he plans on doing it. Maybe, I don't know how planned out he's got this. But in his mind, he realizes that this is a false agreement. It's a charade. Um, it's a it's 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 a smokescreen. He's he's doing this just to dupe the players into trusting him so that he can get close enough to Jerusalem to launch his military campaign, the one we just read about. So I don't know if he if seven years is going to be highlighted all for the rest of the world to see. Even still, only those who have been reading their Bible will even be aware of the seven year detail. Those who don't care about biblical prophecy, to them, seven years will be nothing. It won't mean anything to them. It'll just be an unusually short time to set up a peace treaty. I mean, if you're going to have peace in the Middle East, why not make it 70 years? Why not make it 700? Heck, just keep going into infinity. Let's just go as long as possible. Why seven is the point I'm trying to make up. It's a very short time frame for anything to take hold, to, to have any lasting effect. So that's why I think it will be... Kind of interpreted by a lot of people or the rest of the world as some sort of initial phase of a longer rollout of events that we as bible students know actually truly will be only around seven years long right prophetic years and yet you know remember hitler himself said that the third reich would last for a thousand years right and yet we know that his military machine only lasted like a short like 12 years or something like that thank goodness all right thank god i should say all right let's keep reading joel richardson this is a look at his book the islamic antichrist which is available at amazon.com as well as available for free on his websites check out the descriptions the, the links in the description of these videos Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. He says, Then, in the middle of the seven years, the Antichrist will renege on his treaty and stop the offerings and sacrifices in the Jewish temple, and then he will proclaim himself to be not only the ruler of the world, but also God himself. And I get a lot of pushback on this question of, Will there be a third temple rebuilt in Jerusalem? In fact, some of my more recent comments are, where in the Bible does it say there will be a third temple rebuilt? Well, the prophecy that we just read in Daniel assumes that there or predicts, I, don't, I shouldn't just say assumes, that's, that kind of gives the wrong idea. It predicts that there will be a ceasing, and a, a disruption of the sacrificial system. This isn't the only place in Daniel, by the way. Keep reading in your book of Daniel, past chapter 9, into chapter 10, and 11, and 12. Finish out the rest of the book. And then jump into Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and read all of it. Discourse, comments by Yeshua himself, and then make sure you include Paul in the Thessalonian letters, and then don't stop till you finish out the book of Revelation. And in all of those places, that supports the idea that there will be a temple or something that allows for sacrifices, but could be as large as the full-blown temple, could be as small as just a portable structure like a tent of meeting type um, 
um, you know, set up or a tabernacle like we read about in the Old Testament. But either way, all of that corroborates against the other Old Testament prophecies where there will be a return of the animal sacrifices, at least in the millennial kingdom. So this initial Antichrist temple or what we might call, I like to call it a secular temple, the temple that will be desecrated by the Antichrist, that likely won't be the one that will not be the one that Yeshua utilizes in his kingdom. I think he's probably just going to clear all that mess out that's on the Temple Mount now and start brand new. So even if the Jewish people are successful, if Temple Mount Faithful is successful in rebuilding some form of temple in the 70th week, the 70th week temple could very well be destroyed again and then Yeshua comes and builds the Millennial Temple. So, those of you who are dialoguing with me via my YouTube channel, comments, direct emails, etc., etc., and you're asking me, where does the Bible predict a temple will be rebuilt? Well, remember, from the perspective that I'm holding to, currently in 2023, there's no temple uh, in Jerusalem. But... According to my understanding of the Bible, prophecies and those that are listed in Daniel and in times and in uh, time passages I just mentioned, there will not only just be one temple that shows up for a short amount of time that will be destroyed or defiled by Antichrist, but then there will be another temple that is occupied by the Lord Himself, from which sacrifices will go forth again as well, and this will be a much longer-lasting temple because Yeshua Himself will be ruling from that location. Therefore, its duration is at least a thousand years, or perhaps it'll extend into the millennia or into the eternal state. We don't know yet. Nevertheless, uh, those are the places where I, I'm directing you to look. If I don't get back to your comments right away, then. Go back and you're listening to these uh, podcasts and watching these videos, and I hope you can see that it appears that there should be some temple structure built that will facilitate sacrifices. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. He talks about how that in Isaiah, the prophet, makes mention of this covenant. Right, he calls it a covenant of death. We're going to read, and he rebukes Israel for making it. He actually refers to it as a covenant with death in Isaiah 28, 14, and 15. And we say covenant of death because if you go back and read those passages in Isaiah, Israel is saying to themselves, right, since invasion is imminent, right, we're talking about Israel, ancient Israel went through two invasions. One of the invasions uh, swooped down uh, from Assyria from the north and scooped up the northern tribes of Israel in the 700s BC. And then uh, less than 200 years later, or very close to around 200 years later, Babylon overthrew Assyria and used their military power to come down into Israel and scoop up the rest, which is Judah in the south. And when that happened in the 500s of ancient B of BC of in Israel, like around five in the 580s, 586 or something around there, when that happened, Israel had to contend with the idea that what are we going to do? Are we going to trust in our own military power? Are we going to trust in God to, to deliver us? You know, Jerusalem had yet to be sacked by a, a Gentile world power. Never before had she been besieged by a Gentile power. Even during the Assyrian siege 200 years earlier, Jerusalem survived. And yet, Jerusalem was now under threat. And what did they say? They decided not to trust in God. 
in, indeed, the invasion itself, the exile was part of God's punishment against Israel for her penchant lust for idolatry and playing the harlotry with all these false gods and things like that, the idols around her, the, the, the gods of the nations. So, she and her blindness was not trusting in God. So, what did she do instead? She said, let's trust, I'm paraphrasing, let's trust other people, groups around us. Let's make a pact with Egypt and maybe they'll protect us. Um, when the scourge comes upon us, let's just trust the fact that we're not going to suffer death. So we're going to make a, we're, we're going to kind of, and this is kind of a weird way to put it, but we're going to trust in death that he won't take our lives. We're going to make a pact and a covenant with death not to kill us not to destroy us, not to take our, our livelihood away and to destroy us, uh, you know, to, to exile us, etc., etc., like happened to our northern brothers. And so they make this pact and covenant with death. And so Isaiah mentions that about Israel, and yet when we look at the Antichrist, it's that same sense of false security where they're placing their trust in someone who is not God or something that is not God, and therefore... It's as if they're making a covenant with death. And indeed, that's what's going to turn out to be. They're going to trust in Antichrist to give them what they've been wanting for so long, which is a rebuilt temple, preeminence in Israel, a spot on the table of international affairs. Jerusalem will kind of be a jeweled city, as it were, probably decked out, uh, maybe even similar to the description of Mystery Babylon in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, etc. Jerusalem will probably begin to resemble that very prominent, rich, protected city, safe city for the first three and a half years. They'll drop their defenses, probably let their guard down. Maybe the Iron Dome won't be such a big deal in those days because there will be a measure of false security and false peace as a result of this Antichrist deal, this covenant with death that Israel will have made. And, and indeed, Joel says in his final words of this particular paragraph, in this covenant, the Israelis find a false sense of security. So for a brief moment, there will, be, there will exist something, something will exist in the Middle East that has never existed on a permanent level for quite a while, and that is peace. Yeah, for a while, it will look as if much of that region's problems are solved. Because the tensions between Israel and her neighbors will seemingly be, have been taken care of by this leader known as the Antichrist. Okay, let's keep reading Joel Richardson's book. We're now down into a section where he begins to talk about the Mahdi seven-year treaty. So we've already looked at the biblical description and what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes and brings in his particular brand of fake peace. What about Islam? Do they have their own version of this? Yep, you bet. Let's read it. Joel begins. Again, similarly, the Mahdi is said to be one who will initiate Islam's fourth and final treaty between the Romans, they call, right, the quote-unquote the Romans, and the Muslims. So, the players look slightly different. Let me back up there. The players in Islamic eschatology are, not, are instead not Israel and her Muslim neighbors and the rest of the world per se, it's Islam's religious or the caliphate reestablished 
or the Ottoman rulers, Ottoman rule reestablished, so led by Islam, and the treaties made between Islam and the Romans, meaning the non Muslims, when we say Romans there, again, Joel clarifies for us, again, Romans should be interpreted as Christians or the West in general, the executioners of Nicholas Berg in their pre-execution statement addressed President Bush as, and this is just kind of an historical event that we can kind of reference, uh, when Nicholas Berg uh, in the, the executioners of Nicholas Berg in their pre-execution statement addressed President Bush as, You, O dog of the Romans, speaking of President Bush, even though we know that President Bush is not a Roman, at least as far as I understand. He's, he's a Texan, right? He's from Texas. He's uh, American, right? I, I think I got that right. So, interestingly... Uh, Joel Richardson says, interestingly enough, this fourth treaty in Islam is said to be made with a descendant of Moses' brother Aaron, the priest. And this is also an interesting parallel, because we're going to be, begin to talk about Islam and this treaty between Islam and a priestly figure, someone who's a descendant of Aaron's lineage, the Kohenim, the priests. In our look at the non-Muslim Antichrist model that we looked at a while back, where we looked at Robert Ben Campen's Antichrist, right? Antichrist for Robert Ben Campen, if you remember. The primary prototype of Antichrist that we borrowed was Antiochus Epiphanes. And if you remember from the story, you probably don't, so I'm just reminding you, but history confirms this. Antiochus Epiphanes, when he made his way into Jerusalem and he was dealing with is Jewish people of that day concerning how he might establish his stronghold there in the Middle East, dealings with Egypt and other surrounding people groups. If you remember, there were two prominent Jewish priests who were also willing to work with him in helping him to achieve his goals. So they were bribed, they were corrupted, and they were wicked in their uh, uh, allowing to uh, the Antichrist to, uh, I'm sorry, to allow uh, Antiochus to establish, set up shop, set up rule in Jerusalem. They were willing to uh, uh, be be bribed and to accept, you know, riches for their uh, participation in his plannings and schemes and things like that. So I find that kind of be an interesting parallel that history has already given us that this Antichrist figure, Antiochus, had already begun to establish these dealings with religious Jews, particularly of the lineage of Aaron, so from the uh, priestly order. So we're seeing this again according to the Islamic model. Uh, Joel Richardson fills in these details for us. Such a descendant would be a Kohanim, right? A Kohen. That is to say, he would be a priest. Only Kohanim, which is the Hebrew word for priests, as in plural. The singular is Kohen. Only Kohanim are allowed among Jews to officiate the priestly duties of the temple. So, since we're talking about the temple and its precincts, and we're talking about you know, establishing some sort of agreement that will allow religious activities to resume among Israel's priestly interested, right, among religious Jews who are in favor of constructing a temple and resuming animal sacrifices. I say that because there are a good number of 
Israelis and non-religious Jews who are opposed to that, even within the Orthodox sect of Judaism, in many places of Israel, there is opposition to a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and a re-establishment re of the animal sacrifices. Even though that sounds, that doesn't seem to make sense to your average non-religious Jew or non-religious or, or religious Christian, biblical Christian, like you're thinking, well, wouldn't you want that? I mean, that's what the Bible describes. But there's, it's a big political mess over there. So. Joel talks about this. He says, this is important in light of the fact that many Christian prophecy teachers and theologians have speculated that the treaty that the Antichrist will initiate with Israel will include an agreement to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. Again, I get a lot of pushback on this because on the one hand, I'm not saying that this 70th week or seven-year temple that's I'm, I'm trying to figure out which name to call it third temple if you want to call it that and meaning messiah's temple would be the fourth temple i guess ezekiel's temple i'm not definitely saying i'm not saying definitely that there's going to be a temple structure i'm simply saying that there will be something that allows for sacrifices to be resumed so the temple is not a sure deal but the sacrifices are. And it appears to be that the biblical requirement for the sacrifices is that there be some structure that's as small as a tent of meeting or a tabernacle type structure, but as large as a full-blown temple or something like that. So when we consider that Christianity has an aversion to returning to animal sacrifices based on their understanding that Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. I can understand why there's a pushback by many within Christian circles, uh, a pushback on agreeing that there would be some for, uh, form of rebuilt temple. On the one hand, you have to remember that we're dealing with apostate Jews, Jewish people who have rejected Jesus and who are going to simply embrace any program that allows them to bring in you know some form of temple temple and temple structure at least for those types of jews who are looking for that so with regards to a temple that could be rebuilt and that likely will be rebuilt we're talking about jewish people who have rejected christ who as the messiah and are ripe for embracing the false messiah antichrist and his agenda, etc., etc. On the other hand, we have to remember that this third temple or interim temple or 70th week temple is something that's designed to only last the duration of the 70th week. It is not to be confused with Ezekiel's temple slash Messiah's millennial temple. So, um, just keep those details in mind as we're reading through these notes. Let's continue reading Joel Richardson. He quotes, he says, quote, But probably the most amazing aspect of this treaty that the Mahdi makes with this Jew of priestly lineage is its time frame. So we're talking about the seven year, 17th week of Daniel. He says the specific time frame given by Muslim authorities, I might add, for the treaty is exactly the same as the Antichrist's peace treaty, which is what? Seven years. So, citing Hadith, which speak of the Mahdi's emergence and rule, Muhammad Ali ibn Zubair relates this amazing tradition. So, we have a quote from a modern or a later, I should say, I'm not sure when this gentleman lived, but 
um, someone who's not Muhammad himself. Uh, but here's what he has to say <clears throat> concerning uh, Islamic prophecy. <clears throat> eschatology the prophet speaking of muhammad the prophet said there will be four peace agreements between you and the romans again remember romans there's just a word used by islamic authorities or writers to describe anyone who's not muslim in this context a, a four peace agreements between you and the Mo romans the fourth will be mediated through a person who will be from the progeny of scroll up there from the progeny of hadrat aaron i.e honorable aaron i.e the brother of moses the biblical aaron and moses and will be upheld for seven years so this is an interesting parallel to the biblical data that we're already familiar with as prophecy students this muslim specialist continues the people asked quote o prophet muhammad who will be the imam i.e the leader of the people at that time and the quote finishes by saying the prophet said he will be from my progeny and will be exactly 40 years of age his face will shine like a star etc etc and so the quote leaves off there so we have this descendant of muhammad according to some eschatology experts in islamic circles who will be this final 12th imam who will come in and usher in this seven-year peace treaty with the romans i.e the non-muslims and there's the parallel that we're looking at with end time prophetic details let's keep going we've got about 15 minutes left in our study and we're making some pretty good time let's begin to talk now about the biblical idea of changing the laws and times and we've read this kind of wording in the book of daniel itself right he will think of changing times and laws joel continues another of the antichrist's goals according to the book of daniel just like i mentioned is said to be that he will try to quote change the set times and laws end quote so let's see if there is some parallel let's first read daniel's notes this is Daniel 7.25. Speaking of the Antichrist, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. This is Daniel 7.25. I might interject before I read uh, Mr. Richardson's notes on this particular passage. I might interject that We'll see if he talks about it, but I'm trying to do it before he talks. When I research the European model of the Antichrist, i.e. the non-Islamic model, I have found that many Bible prophecies, prophecy teachers believe that when Daniel talks about the Antichrist changing times and laws and things like that, that often they believe that the Antichrist will try to change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, or something like that and thus the picture that many people paint of the antichrist is someone who resembles a pope because there's the sentiment that it was the catholic church that rejected the jewish saturday sabbath historically and changed it over to sunday and so we have some sort of 
Antichrist figure who parallels a Pope figure. And of course, this is really popular in some Christian circles. More notably, maybe I believe, if I remember, Seventh-day Adventist, LNG White type of end-time prophecy perspectives. I don't prescribe to that particular perspective, although I do find it an interesting fact of history and it could play an interesting detail in regards to if the Islamic Antichrist turns out to be the one that hits the scene, which I think there's a strong probability that it could be an Islamic figure that is uh, the Antichrist figure. The Mahdi, etc., etc. If that ends up being the case, then he certainly is not friendly towards Jewish times and laws. He's decidedly anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic and anti-Bible, so that might kind of play right into his hand where he might be thinking, okay, let's just change all of the set biblical times that are lined out for the Jewish people and just change them into something else. So let's see how Joel Richardson interacts with this information from the book of Daniel. Joel says, this is actually quite a big hint into the person of the Antichrist, speaking about the changing of the times and laws. For by his actions, we see a hint of his origin, right? It's said that he will desire to change two things, times and laws. Now, we have already seen that the Mahdi will change the law by instituting the Islamic Sharia law, Right, you've heard of that Sharia law. By instituting this Sharia law all over the earth, but we have not seen any evidence in Islamic apocalyptic literature of him. What we've not seen is any sign or evidence of him changing the times. So there's one thing to establish law, it's another thing to change the times. Joel says the simple question, however, is who else other than a Muslim, would desire to change the times and laws. Besides the Gregorian calendar used by the West, Mr. Richardson comments that there's also a Jewish, a Hindu, and a Muslim calendar, among others. So we're looking at this from maybe a global perspective. Jews or Hindus, however, are not a people who would desire to impose their religious laws or calendars onto the rest of the world. Islam, however, does have both its own laws and its own calendar, both of which it would desire to impose onto the entire world, according to their eschatological prophecies. Joel continues, the Islamic calendar is based on the career of Muhammad. It begins at the migration, the Hirjah, of Muhammad from Mecca to Medina. The Muslim calendar is viewed, he says, as being mandatory for all to observe. Of course, he means all Muslims, but eventually, if Islam rules the world one day, then it will be everybody. Dr. Walid Mahana articulates the Islamic position regarding the Islamic Hijra, or Hijra, I think I'm probably mispronouncing that the hydra calendar might be hydra but i think it's hydra all right so let's look at this quote from again another islamic specialist quote it is considered a divine command to use a calendar with 12 purely lunar months without intercalation as evident from the holy quran and we already know that the islamic calendar if you've ever kind of taken note or observed that Ramadan usually falls on a different month 
every year is because there's no intercalculation that would adjust their calendar so that Ramadan stayed positioned within one season like happens in Israel's calendars, right? God commanded Moses to command the Israelites to observe Passover in the springtime of the year. And yet, because of the differences between the rotation of the earth around the sun and the rotation of the earth on its own axis in conjunction with the sightings of the moon marking off the months, then we have months that need to be adjusted using leap years in Jewish reckoning in order to make sure that Passover stays in the springtime of the year. If we didn't do that, if we didn't intercalculate, then similar to Islam and Ramadan, Passover would wander throughout the year and would would actually leave the spot of the spring and eventually wander into summer and then into fall and then into winter and then back around into spring again within a space of I think like either six years or twelve years or I'm I, I'm just pulling this details from memory but trust me at least on the the general idea that the Jewish calendar has to be intercalculated it has to be adjusted with leap years and leap months, right? Adding an extra month, um, an extra Adar, uh, so that we end up with two of them in some years. Adar Aleph and Adar Bet is the Jewish month, A-D-A-R, Adar. So if we didn't do that in Judaism, then we would have wandering season, or wandering um, calendar observances. Well, Islam doesn't do that. They don't intercalculate. They just let the months be reckoned according to the moon. So for that reason, Ramadan wanders through the year. I mention that because it's not fixed according to either a date, like Nisan 14th Passover, or fixed according to a day, like, for instance, say, Easter is fixed according to a day. So let's read Joel Richardson's notes on this phenomenon about changing times and laws. Not only, he says, does Islam view as a divine imperative the use of a unique religious calendar, it also has its own week. Unlike the Western rhythm of a week, Monday through Friday being the body of the work week, followed by Saturday and Sunday as the weekend with Judaism and Christianity using uh, these two days that we already know, uh, two of these days for their respective days of worship, Islam holds Friday as its sacred day of prayer. So we, we can kind of see that. Friday is the religious day for Islam. Saturday is the religious day for Jews. And Sunday is the religious day for Christians. Joel continues, This is the day, speaking of Friday, it's the day that Muslims meet at the mosque to pray and to listen to a sermon. So that's no secret so far. Let's keep reading his notes. Thus, he says, it's quite plausible that the biblical reference to the Antichrist who will, quote, try to change the set times and laws, like we read about in Daniel up above. So, that's our quote from Daniel. He says it's plausible that, that it is a Muslim who will be trying to change the times and laws. Now, again, he's just speculating. He says it's plausible. He's not saying it's definitive. He goes on to say that as we look at the full picture, only Islam fits the bill of a system that has its own unique calendar and week based on its own religious history and a clear system of law that uh, Joel says wishes to impose upon the entire earth. So I find that to be an interesting 
sort of set of details that given the weight of the possibility slash probability of the Antichrist fitting into the Islamic model, like we're discussing, that this parallel of where Daniel talks about changing the times and laws on a worldwide scale, since it is Antichrist who's seeking to establish his one world government, his new world order, etc., etc., that it is interesting that Islam has already prepped him or prepared the way, unwittingly and unknowingly probably, for such a change to be implemented, such a program to be uh, put into practice. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. Surely, he says, if a Muslim ever emerges who is as powerful as the Mahdi is described as being, right, we're talking about Antichrist, then he will certainly attempt to institute both the Islamic law worldwide and the Islamic calendar in week as well. So, those are details that I think every Christian should uh, sit up and listen to, at least if you, even if you're not even if you're not in agreement, full agreement that the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim or that Islam is going to actually rule the world one day for a while during the seventh week, I like uh, if if this tends to play out, if this is going to play out the way that Joel is uh, thinking that it will and that Islam hopes that it will, so if it's, so if he's right, it's the point I'm trying to make. Then, if I read the book of Revelation correctly, and the rest of the Bible correctly, then even if Islam does rule the world one day, it'll only be for kind of like a short three and a half years. It'll be a very short stint. So, and that, that's, you know, that, that is, that, that's, I don't know what to make of that, de of those details per se, why it's only three and a half years before Satan goes on this intense rampage and just starts killing anyone and everyone who opposes him, including religious institutions right he seeks to somehow institute his own brand of religion now it could be misreading those prophecies and we're drawing to a close we've got about three or four minutes left in the study here so winding things down it could be that the antichrist decides to continue to allow islam to have a prominent place in his uh scheme of things it could be that instead of the first three and a half years that maybe it's the last three and a half years, so I could get that backwards, because, I mean, how does that coincide with allowing Israel to establish a temple mount structure, a temple structure on the temple mount? If, in the first three and a half years, if it's Islam that's supposed to be dominating the world during three and a half years, right? There, there seems to be some conflict there. Maybe it's that for the first three and a half years, he allows some form of ecumenical brand of religion to rule the world, for the first three and a half years where he kind of facilitates and tricks all or allows not really tricking but allowing all the religions to coexist together peaceably and do their own thing for the first three and a half years and then at the midpoint when he turns on everybody including israel if it's an islamic leader there in that top position of antichrist ruling the world the mahdi the 12th imam then it would be at the midpoint when islam begins its worldwide domination and rulership and so it'd be the last three and a half years where islam would be imposing kind of worldwide religious uh restrictions and 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 mandates and things like that so instead of the first three and a half it'd be the i think that's probably more plausible when i consider all the facts and put them all on the table and, and consider that satan when he declares himself to be god isn't necessarily maybe throwing islam under the bus maybe he's allowing islam to be that top religion underneath him 
where he himself is declaring declaring God. But again, there are details that that are very difficult to uh, ascertain how they're going to play out if he's declaring himself to be God and opposing every religious object or worship that's uh, shown to be God. Wouldn't this run into a conflict with Islam as well, who worships Allah? and gives high praise to Muhammad, wouldn't they resist the Antichrist if he says, hey, I'm God? I mean, is their Imam going to declare himself to be Allah? Is that how that works out? Right? Is the Mahdi going to say, I'm Allah incarnate? You know, which Islam doesn't believe in the incarnation, at least from the biblical model. So things are going to start getting, uh, sooner or later, getting very particular, and we as Bible students are just going to have to be on our toes I'm not saying you have to go out and pick up a copy of the Quran and read it for yourself so that you can be better prepared for these end-time scenarios. I'm actually saying don't do that, right? You don't need to do that. What I am saying you need to do is begin to read your Bible and to begin to make it a priority to make your relationship with God real, genuine. And this can only take place, and I'm saying this in closing because it's it's of primary importance, and I'll close my uh, study with this it is of paramount and primary importance that we christians make it a priority to have a relationship with yeshua the real christ the genuine messiah not the antichrist not the false christ not the replacement one not the mahni not the 12th imam not the european guy that's going to show up if it's going to be that guy we need to have a relationship with the real jesus right the real yeshua and you can only find him in the pages of the bible you can't find him in a mosque per se right he's not found in the pages of the quran that's not the true jesus that's a that's a jesus that's been fabricated by an enemy of christianity so you need to have a relationship with the true jesus and you need to immerse yourself in his words and that's the bible that's the truth so make that your priority. And all of these other details, as God deems it necessary, he'll reveal those details for you. And Yeshua even promised that the Holy Spirit would give us the right words to say when the time comes, if you're hauled in before the opposing authorities and, que- and uh, questioned and put on trial for your faith, at that time, Yeshua said, I will give you a mouth to speak. My spirit, i.e. the Holy Spirit, he will be speaking for you so don't worry too much about that your faith just needs to be in yeshua so for the rest of the world who has no relationship with god no relationship with yeshua i'm sorry to say but you're already primed to accept the lie of the antichrist no matter if he comes from a european model or an islamic model it doesn't matter you're already in a position where you're going to be duped where you're going to be deceived where you're going to be fooled where your heart is going to be hardened by god himself into Believing the the delusion that God's going to send, the strong lie, the strong delusion that Paul talks about in Thessalonian letters. God himself will send this strong delusion. So you're going to have the very God of the universe resisting you and opposing you. Plus, you have the second most powerful being in the universe, Satan himself, uh, extending his influence beginning in Jerusalem and extending out to the rest of the world. So you're going to be in a very, very bad place between a rock and a hard place in the most worst way possible because you've rejected the love of the truth like Paul talks about in the book of Romans and then echoes again in in the books to the Thessalonians. So that's going to do it for our look at eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, 
Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ari Lyman Hana V. We're looking at this passage in the book of Matthew, chapter 22. We left off here last week, where we're beginning to unpack this passage from the book of Psalms, chapter from the Psalms, chapter 110, verse 1, and also pulling in verse 5 for some of those details. But primarily, biblicalunitarian.com has put together an article that soundly states that the Lord of Psalm 110 is not a divine Messiah. Let's just pull the verse and quote it so that we can get our context. So you can see on my screen, I've got two parts, uh, two um versions in front of you uh the english nasb on the left side of your screen and the, and the hebrew masoretic on the right side of the screen and it says in english on the right on the uh left side a psalm of david the lord says to my lord sit in my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet and the clause that we're focusing on is this clause that i just highlighted on my screen the lord capital l-o-r-d says to my lord capital l lowercase o-r-d in, in the nasb According to Biblical Unitarian, the second Lord is the human Jesus, the human Messiah, the decidedly non-divine future Messiah that David was being shown a picture of in the Spirit. The Hebrew 
on the right side of the screen says, La David Mizmor, i.e. a psalm of David. Neum Yahweh Ladoni, Shave Limini Ad Ashit Oivecha Hadom Lecha. Same uh, passage, and all the, the, the translation over in the ASB is fairly uh, spot on, as far as I can tell from reading the Hebrew. But the clause in question is Neum Yahweh Ladoni. And in this rendering from the Hebrew, the First Adonai, or Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is actually the tetragram, it's the name of God, Y-H-V-H. And the second Lord, Ladoni, is composed of the uh, conjunction L, unto, or preposition, I should say, I'm sorry, not conjunction, preposition L, unto, or to, La, and then coupled with Adoni, according to the Masoretic vowel pointing, Adoni. And yet, when we scroll down to verse 5 of the same chapter, we have the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. The clause in question, the first clause, the Lord is at your right hand, is represented by the Hebrew over here that says, Adonai al-Yamincha. This Lord that you see on your screen right there, which looks suspiciously like the first Lord up in verse 1. I, I'm sorry, like the second Lord in verse 1, with a capital L only, but other lowercase O-R-D. This is because the Hebrew is not Y-H-V-H, Yodivavi, Yahweh. Instead, it is the word Adonai, pronounced Adonai, as in comparison to Adoni from verse 1 above. What does Biblical Unitarian have to say about these uh, particular these peculiarities? They say that this is proof positive that this Messiah, let's scroll back up to verse 1, this Jesus, this Lord, this is proof positive that this second Lord right here is a human because this word Adoni is exclusively used in the Bible to describe important humans or sometimes angels, but usually humans. It's never used to describe God. This word, the word that we encountered earlier in verse 5, Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I, in the transliterated form, this word is exclusively used for God. It's a description of the one true God of the universe, i.e. Yahweh. So, we went through this um, somewhat labored exercise in the past few weeks, and even now it's going on to easily more than a month, of maybe even a few months. And we looked at this detail of whether or not can that claim be substantiated? And we found that no, not really. Biblical Unitarians is either making making a gross overstatement or they're just outright wrong. Or perhaps they're, maybe they're being deceptive. I'm not going to judge them uh, for that. That's between them and God. But for my part, as a biblical student and teacher and someone who wants to be a Berean on the matter, I found that their research seems to be inaccurate. The word Adoni is used for God in a few places. The root word Adon, which is Strong's number 113, is definitely, let me pull that up for you so you can see these two. The root word Adon over on the left side of your screen, which is simply the root of Adonai and Adoni, it's the root of both of these words. So Strong's has designated 113 for the root word Adon, and Strong's designates 136 Adonai for the word that is exclusively describing Yahweh God. We say exclusive in the sense that Adonai is always God, and yet Yahweh is God, God's covenantal name. So Adonai is one of those names that is used to describe Yahweh. 
by comparison, Biblical Unitarian says that Adoni is never used of God or is not a name that should be understood to be associated with God. We found that their findings were, like I said, either inaccurate or incomplete or deceptive. You fill in the blank for which one is there. I'm not going to judge them on that my, for myself. But I find it disappointing that they are pushing that view that says that Adoni must definitely mean that this this Messiah is human. We found out that no, that's not the case. Adoni can be used of God, especially when naming individuals who have the word Adoni in their name, such as Adonijah, Adoniyahu, or Adoniyah, as well as the Strong's number 113 shows up many places, not just in the book of Psalms, but other places in the Bible that definitely are talking about God, like as in the book of Psalms, I think chapter 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. In that rendering, O Lord, our Lord, um, Yahweh is mentioned the first time, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and then our Lord is um, a form of the Strong's 133 Nenu, which is Adoni or Adonai plus Nenu, plus Enu, which is our, the suffix meaning the Lord of us, Adonenu. But the Strong's number is 113, it's not 136, the point I'm trying to make, which means it must be rooted in a word that's related to Adoni instead of uh, Adonai directly. So, Biblical Unitarian, you guys need to pick up your scholarship there, need to shore it up a little bit. Well, what we're doing now is we're turning to the New Testament where we're really getting the final say on the matter. Yeshua has this intense challenge from the Pharisees, from the religious leaders of his day. It's really a contest over and over again between who he knows himself to be as both 100% truly human, truly human, and yet 100% and truly God, truly divine. And yet, because this is the revelation of the incarnation, as God his Father has deemed to begin to slowly reveal to humankind, to humanity, not just throwing it in our face boldly and bluntly with Yeshua, you know, uttering the words, I am God, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, play out that way that's much to the dismay of the detractors they you know if you're if you're who you say you are tell us plainly and yeshua's like okay i've demonstrated who i am i've told you who i am it's your hardness of heart that doesn't accept the truth right it's like the old it's like that movie um a few good men with tom cruise and jack nicholson kind of an older movie and towards the end of the movie jack nicholson who is the villain in this particular movie not, don't mean to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, but he's the bad guy, and he's he's in the courtroom scene, he's on the hot seat, and he looks at uh, Tom Cruise with these beady eyes and is like, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth, right? It's kind of what's going on with Yeshua. You know, I imagine, you know, the very is like, tell us the truth, tell us plainly, who are you? And Yeshua wants to say to them, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth, right? And the truth is that he is very God in flesh. They couldn't handle that. And so what happens is Yeshua decides to use the Bible to his advantage. He realizes that he is fully God and fully man. He's truly God and truly man. And said the prophecies that foretell of the coming Messiah describe a human, but they also agree with the truth that this Messiah is truly divine. And so even if, and I, I'm going to allow for this, even if we give the benefit of the doubt that Psalm 110 was referring to, was actually that actually said Adoni instead of Adonai, meaning even if David was truly only seeing a human Messiah, it doesn't change the fact that Yeshua is human, 
So that's where the prophecy is in agreement. But it doesn't change the fact that there are other verses in the Bible. It doesn't have to be Psalm 110, but there certainly are verses in the New Testament that make it very explicit that Jesus is more than human. Right? It's like the Transformers. There's more than he's more than meets the eye. He is more than human, people. He's more than human. And I don't see how biblical Unitarian can can substantiate this idea. Right? Later on we'll get to passages where uh, the New Testament talks about how that the worlds were created through Yeshua. How could the worlds be created through a mere human? If Jesus was born in the first century through his parents, Miriam and Joseph, like biblical Unitarian wants us to assume, then how could God create the world through him? I mean, hello, right? Who who were the worlds created through? Unless Jesus was more than human, unless he predates his human existence. So let's look at Matthew 22. And we're going to also look at Mark and Luke and the book of Acts, where this passage is pulled in. Remember, as I mentioned, Psalm 110 is the most oft-quoted psalm in the New Testament for good reason. The Holy Spirit felt that it was necessary to highlight this passage. It shows up at least, I think, if I remember, 15 times in direct quote, and then another almost 15 times in indirect reference, giving it almost 30 good uh, references in the New Testament o- overall, like 15 being direct quotes, something uh, either that's talking about being seated at the right hand of God, his Father, or being raised up in the position of priest and king. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, like the book writer to the book of Hebrews uses predominantly, or it talks about him um, crushing his adversaries or things like that. So, a lot of the verbiage in Psalm 110 is very, very important to the Bible writers, and so for that reason, that's why I've been spending a lot more time on it in this particular expose of our comparison between the non-Trinitarian versions of verses, verse, uh, uh, passages versus the Trinitarian ver- passages. Let's try that one again. A, a look at the Bible through the lens of the non-Trinitarian compared to a look at the Bible through the lens of a Trinitarian. So, let's look at Matthew 22. I would really like to bring the study to a close because I feel it's, I've, I've kind of done it justice and I've really presented my case in an adequate manner. I've exegeted the passage to my, the best of my ability, and I have not just quoted others, but I've tried to do the exegetical work myself with you guys along for the ride. You've seen how I pulled out the Hebrew and the Greek. In fact, let's look at the Greek real quick. I almost forgot. In the Greek rendering of this passage, a psalm of David, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is um, Greek doc, dot. Tom's uh, former website put together by uh, John Barich, uh, a guy that I'm in contact with via email and is very, very uh, supportive of if you have questions for him. He's a great uh, resource, Christian man himself. And um, uh, his website is worth bookmarking. Now it's Greek Doc dot github.io but he has an English rendering at the top there. Then he's got the Hebrew again, La David. Um, Le David Mizmor Neum Yahweh Ladoni Shev Limini Ad Ashit Oivecha Hadom Le Raglecha. And then we've got two renderings in the he- of the uh, Greek, left and right. Left side is Alexandrinus, right side is Vaticanus. They're nearly identical except for the first clause, To David Salmas on the left side, and Salmas To David on the right side. So let's borrow the left side Greek, and read that for you. To David Salmas, Apen Hakurias to Kuriomu, Kathu ek Dezionmu, Ethos an tho tus ek thrusu, Hupapadion ton padon su. 
And the clause that should catch our interest is the one I've just highlighted, Apen ha kurios to kurio mu, which reads, or translated from the Greek is, said the Lord to the Lord of me. And when we look at the corresponding English uh, translation from David Barrich himself, a psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, why is this significant for our study? Because the New Testament that we're about to interact with was not originally written in Hebrew as far as we can ascertain. At least there are no surviving manuscripts in Hebrew, but we do have are copious amounts of manuscripts in Greek. And the biblical Greek reads nearly word for word identical to the Septuagint Greek that you're seeing on your screen, which means when it comes to those two words, Lord and Lord, one being all caps representation of Yahweh from the Hebrew, and the other being capital L only lowercase O-R-D in some Bibles, other Bibles have it all lowercase L-O-R-D, but that being the representative from the Hebrew of Adoni or Adonai, depending on what your theology leans. Well, the Greek writers, the Greek translators of the Septuagint, decided to render Yahweh as, excuse me, as kurios, as you can see highlighted in my, uh, on your screen right now. And when it came to the word Adoni, it's the word kurio, which is a form of the word kurios, the same root word. So the point I'm trying to bring up is that from their perspective, it allows for them to see these two words as somewhat overlapping in the Greek, Lord and Lord, just like you see down in the English translation here, where the first Lord is not all caps L-O-R-D, it's identical in English to the second Lord, which is why now, as we've kind of prepped ourselves, when we get to the Matthew rendering, let's read it here. Starting in verse 41, we read this last week, but we'll read it again. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus, this is NESB, Jesus asked them a question, right? Now, let me kind of set you up for what we're about to read. Jesus knows who he is. He knows he's human, and he knows he's divine. And he also knows that the Pharisees are aware that the passage, that the prophecy that he's about to um, bring up, speaks of a human messiah. So he takes that opportunity to bring their opinion into the discussion and then to push the envelope just a bit to expose their what we could call what I could say their short-sightedness. So at best it's short-sightedness, at worst it's full-blown rebellion and rejection of Jesus based on their own tradition and uh, uh, hardness of heart, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So in verse 42 he says, he asked him this 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 paradox question, this this puzzle, a trap question, Willie. <laughs> what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Right? He knows. He knows the answer. He knows it better than anyone. I heard this example that um, uh, who knows the Bible better than the author himself? Well, obviously Yeshua. He's the author of the Bible, so he ought to know what the meanings of the words say, right? So. Uh, so he doesn't really have to ask them what what does the passage mean. He just wants to know what they think, right? He's, he's always pushing the issue to try and get them to see their heart, to try and get humans who are in a position where sometimes they're simply innocently ignorant, but other times they are willingly ignorant, willfully in rebellion against God and God's truth. So he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, right? Notice he doesn't say, you know, well said, thou, I agree with what you're saying. But he implies that. He said, he said to them then, right, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? 
sang. And then we have our quote from Psalm 110, starting in verse 44. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, the quote from the NSB here renders Psalm 110 in all caps. That's simply the, the entire verse in all caps. That's simply the way the NASB version that I'm using here likes to show the reader that we're pulling a quote from the Old Testament, Tanakh, etc., etc. It doesn't mean that this translation believes by using the word, the first Lord in all caps, and the second word of Lord in all caps. It does not imply that the NASB translators believe that the Masoretic Hebrew originally read, Yahweh said to Yahweh. Or something like that. But we do have to remember that the, that, the, that the theology, the theology of many Christian translators from the Bibles is a decidedly Trinitarian translation or Trinitarian perspective, meaning they do believe that the second Lord is a divine Messiah, not just a human Messiah, but a divine Messiah. So, continuing with Yeshua's quote in verse 45, therefore, if David calls him Lord, capital L, lowercase ORD, Right, Yeshua then asked the question, how is he his son? And then verse 46, no one was able to offer him a word and answer, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him any more questions. So I find it interesting that if this is such an open shut case like Biblical Unitarian wants to imply, that it's an an inherently obvious from the Masoretic rendering of Adoni, which was later inked in to a stone with the little vowel points. In other words, the the question was taken away. Uh, these, um, if this is the case, then why then didn't they simply answer him? But it says in verse forty six, no one's able to offer him a word. I think they begin to realize that the verse is nuanced enough. Uh, uh, Psalm one ten one. It carries just enough nuance that if you're going to argue for a human Messiah, you could do so from Psalm one ten. But if you're going to argue for a divine Messiah, you could also do so from Psalm 110 and the rest of the psalm in, in, in context, right? Remember, the same psalm, Psalm 110, not only speaks of the Lord sitting at the right hand of the Lord, the Adoni or Adonai sitting at the right hand of Yahweh, but it also goes on to talk about this ruler who's sitting at the right hand who's also a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's a priest and a king, something that David didn't fulfill. So it couldn't have been totally completed or filled up in David's rulership, because David was just a king, but he wasn't a priest. And yet, this king that David, or this lord that David saw by the Spirit, would be a priest and a king after the order, uh, he would be a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the figure that shows up only one time in the book of Genesis. Very, very enigmatic figure, right? Who just shows up unexpectedly, and Abraham pays tithes to him, you remember the story there. Go back and read it if you're not sure. Also, later on in the in the psalm, in verse five, David records, "The Lord is at your right hand," and this is slightly nuanced or ambiguous or equivocal enough to it carries enough equivocation to ask the question: Is Yahweh Adonai at the right hand of the Lord Adoni, the Messiah, as in a position of, of power where the Lord is? The, the weapon of this king, right? The, the strong, mighty power behind the king? Or is the verse ambiguous enough to say that it is actually the Adonai, the Adonai character who's at the right hand of 
God, like it just described in verse 1. In other words, do they switch places from right to left, the throne positions, or do they remain where they're at? And then David just simply describes different nuance to the word at the right hand, which itself is kind of idiomatic. So those are some of the details that Yeshua is aware of. He's aware of, of course, of all of them. He knows, he knows scripture inside and out because he's the author of scripture. And thus, he's exposing the inconsistencies of these leaders. Again, it's either an expo- is, uh, he's, he's either revealing their hardness of heart or they're just gross, uh, um, what we might call ignorance on the issue, which, uh, again, biblical Unitarian, which is kind of a, a representation of modern-day ancient Socinianism or perhaps maybe uh, sometimes um, just... just um, strict monotheistic uh, Christianity, something to that effect. Let's pick up these quotes as they show up in the other renderings. Uh, they're, they're nearly identical. Um, so let's read this section first, 35 and 36, from the book of Mark, chapter 12. And Jesus responded and began saying, as he taught in the temple area, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then in verse 36, David himself says that, said in the Holy Spirit, and then we have our quote down here. Come on, let's get all of that highlighted. There we go. Starting in verse 36 and continuing to verse 37, we have our quote from the book of Psalms, again, chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then again, Yeshua is pushing the envelope. It's the same account, just different author, Mark instead of Matthew which many believe Mark was the primary writer anyway, and then the other gospel writers borrowed from Mark's writing. So Matthew came along after Mark, Luke came along after Mark, and then John came along after Mark, but did his own very unique uh, style. Doesn't even include this particular story. So we got in three gospels. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. It doesn't say anything about uh, him silencing them or or um, uh, something to the fact that they weren't able to answer him. Uh, so Yeshua is kind of asking, hey, look, if the Messiah to come that the prophecy spoke about in the book of Psalms that David prophesied about, if the Messiah was supposed to be just the son of David, then how is it and why does David address him as Lord? Something that just isn't done, right? That's something that is not the normal way to address your progeny, your offspring. David is the highest position in Israel. He's the king. Why would he address the Messiah as Lord? Why not just address him as son or Ben or Bar in the Aramaic or something? Or, you know, um, you know, why doesn't it say the Lord said to my son? If David was rising, writing this, Yahweh says to my offspring, Yahweh says to my son, sit in my right hand. If, so if, if this coming Messiah was merely a son, why does David address him as Lord? Which, again, the word Lord here, from David's perspective, would have been someone at least higher than David in a rulership sense, in a leadership sense, could be in a humanity sense, right? Sarah called Abraham Lord. That doesn't mean that she was addressing him as deity, because the word Lord in Hebrew, Adoni, or Adon, the root word, but not Adonai, but the word Adon, root word, and the, the derivative of Adoni, my Lord, the emphatic form, which Adonai is also emphatic, it's my Lord. It's not just the Lord, it's the Lord of me, or my Lord, from the Greek, kurias mu, uh, the mu there being of me, which is why I don't understand why biblical Unitarian thinks they're not 
that they're two different words. They say kudios and kudiomu are two different words. Well, duh, because Greek has different case forms for different grammars. Uh, I'm sorry, different uh, parts of different places where the sentence is either subject or object or uh, is playing a different grammar role in the sentence. So, duh, of course, it's going to be kudios versus kudiomu. And besides, kudios is just Lord versus kudiomu is the Lord of me. The mu is being the me part. So, this is kind of a side note, but can't understand what their argument is there. They're just, maybe they don't, they can't understand the Greek in its most basic sense. But back to Mark and the gospel accounts here. Yeshua is trying to get them to understand, look, David addressed his Messiah as Lord, which could be perfectly acceptable even if he was a human Messiah, right? Sarah called Abraham Lord. Other people have addressed human leaders as Lord. You, you as a subject would address the king as Lord. It doesn't mean you're calling him divine. You're not recognizing him as divine. You're not giving him a divine address, etc., etc., because of the way Hebrew recognizes Adoni versus Adonai which is the whole issue, right? Did Psalm 110 originally read Adoni, or did it originally read Adonai when it comes to that second Lord? Because the vowels, the original Hebrew is unvowel pointed. Let me bring this up. I've uh, shown you this in the past. You see these two uh, uh, spellings on the screen. On the right side, we have Adonai, which is the title for God with the little kamat, capital letter T looking letter underneath the representation of the N for the uh, Hebrew Nun. And this tells us that the pronunciation is Adonai, with the vowel markings around it, the little dots and dashes. However, on the left side of the screen, we have the comparison Adoni, with the little dot, the um, vowel point marking Chirik, which gives us the long E sound. And it's under the same letter, the same letter N. And this tells us that the rendering should be pronounced Adoni, and it's a definition or it's referring to uh, human superiors almost always according to biblical unitarian is always but i say no so this is my own research both of these are translated as lord and it just depends on if you want to put all caps uh depending on uh, your translation the point that's germane to our study is that when the new testament was being lived out by yeshua and his disciples the uh ancient hebrew manuscripts that they had at their disposal were unvowel pointed little dots and dashes didn't exist yet. They were not filled in by the Masoretic family. They wouldn't show up for another couple, 400, 500, possibly even 600 years later. It easily passed the time of the New Testament era, right? Into the time when the church and synagogue had already split, and when the Gentilized form of Christianity had begun to grow in um, prominence and in uh, its numbers and swell. And so Christianity began to overtake Judaism as the dominant religion in that part of the world and indeed began to spread into all the rest of the world. Just like Yeshua said, take this gospel into all the rest of the world. He did not say take Gentile Christianity to the rest of the world per se. He said take the gospel. But Gentile Christianity took that and, and took that mandate and carried the gospel to the rest of the world just without its Jewish influence. That's neither here nor there, but here nor there. But point for our study is that, and I apologize for kind of rambling on for so long, but um, the point for our study is that the little dots and dashes weren't there. So the Masoretic family filled in those dots and dashes later on after the church and the synagogue had split, which, from my perspective, suspiciously allowed for them to really basically put in whatever dots and dashes they felt would reject any incarnation principle or reject or suppress any hints to 
the Messiah being divine. And so what we're what we're entertaining is this idea that the scribes tinkered or tampered with the text. Can this be substantiated? Yes, it can. Is Psalm 110 an example of that? Not 100% certain, but there seems to be some indication that it could be possible. And the Greek gives us a little bit of um, allowance for the ambiguity to be carried over. Because by the time the Septuagint was penned in the two centuries leading up to the first century, right? So it was 200 years before the time of Christ, meaning Yeshua had access to the Septuagint, so did Paul, so did all the other New Testament writers. The Septuagint simply says, kurios to kuriomu. It doesn't say kurios to and then fill in a, a different word for like uh, Adonai or something that's not similar. It just uses two words that are nearly identical, which makes sense why we're reading the Lord said to my Lord, that David calls him Lord, and the English renderings look identical to the Septuagint. Looking at uh, Luke real quick, same details. I don't. I won't read it for you. I'll just leave it on the screen for you to read it for yourself. It's nearly identical to Matthew's reading or Mark, Matthew and Mark's reading. In other words, all three are nearly identical. What I do want to look at real quick is just Acts. In Peter's account of Acts chapter 2 and the Pentecost occurrence, the festival of Shavuot, he begins talking to all those Jews who are gathered about Yeshua being uh, prophesied about and about the Holy Spirit being poured out, obviously. And he picks up his sermon in verse 29 of chapter 2. Brothers, I may confidently... Let's highlight that as I read. Uh, Here we go. Brothers, this is Peter speaking. Brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, right? Notice the context that David both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So, notice the context that David wrote many of the Psalms and spoke about a coming king of Israel, and yet Israel, the Israelite leaders, were contemplating. Should the coming Messiah be a resurrected David? Were the Psalms speaking of David himself? Was David writing about himself? Like modern Judaism today, uh, rabbinic Judaism likes to imagine that the Lord who spoke to the Lord, the Lord sitting at the right hand of the Lord, perhaps this Adoni is a resurrected David, and David was simply prophesying about himself unknowingly. Or maybe it was a, uh, it was truly the Messiah. Maybe it was a priest. Maybe it was a, uh, Abraham. Maybe it was some other um, religious figure. But Peter reminds these religious Jews who are experiencing this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that David died and was buried and his tomb is with us. So, because he was a prophet, he says in verse 30, and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Verse 31, David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So Peter is reading the writings of David from an entirely messianic perspective, where this Messiah is not David, but is a future descendant of David, per the promises of God. And yet this future descendant, as Peter's going to get to, this future descendant is greater than David himself. Verse 32, it is this Jesus whom God raised up, 
a fact to which we are all witness. Therefore, verse 33, Peter says, since he has been exalted, speaking of Jesus, he's been exalted at the, here we go, our reference to the book of Psalms, at the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out this which you both see and hear, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, now we begin to turn directly into the book of Psalms. And notice again, Peter also recognizes that David realized that this Messiah was his descendant per the promise of God, and yet David addressed him as Lord, giving this descendant a higher title and status than the King David himself. For it was not David, verse 34, who ascended into heaven, right, sitting at the right hand of God, but he himself says, now here's our quote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then Peter concludes in verse 36 by saying, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, we're out of time for our study, but what I want to do next week, now that we've we basically poured through all of the relevant passages that I want to quote, I could go into the book of Hebrews, but this would drag on for another month or two. And I want to try and bring it to a close so that you can see that I think we've established enough of a context from this passage that... Yes, David, by the Holy Spirit, foresaw and was shown a future king, ruler, Messiah, who was both his offspring and his Lord. <clears throat> and in this prophetic picture, it's entirely possible and allowable that David was seeing a human Messiah, but at the same time, was seeing a divine messiah because of the qualities of this messiah being greater than him and more importantly this messiah being seated at the right hand of god a place that no earthly king has ever and shouldn't ever really occupy meaning to be seated at the right hand of god puts him in a position where he's equal with god because his authority is right next to god in the heavens Hello. It's not like it's not like God is sitting on, on earth on an earthly throne and, this, and an earthly king is seated next to him. This is in the heavens, the Lord said unto my Lord, right? So David's seeing this this prophetic vision in the heavenlies. And indeed, that's what Peter recognizes, right? When he when I back up to the verse in verse 34, Peter's making a point that David didn't ascend into heaven. Right? So when God says, uh, sit at my right hand. He's saying, here, up in heaven, come up to heaven, sit here. And even though um, religious leaders and religious Jews have died and gone to heaven, no one has ever been seated at the right hand of God except the Messiah. So this is a position of preeminence, not just leadership, but equality. Remember, we got, this is borrowed all the way back from the book of Daniel, where the ancient of days which is god says to the son of man you know receive this kingdom and then indeed when we fast forward all the way to the book of john and i'm closing with this john sees one seated on the throne i believe it's revelation chapter 5 if i recall from memory one seated on the throne which is god and the lamb is there as well and 
they both receive worship and adoration from the heavenly host, which is a display of their equality in terms of ruling from this heavenly position and um, a recognition of their nature as deity. The one seated on the throne, which is God the Father and the Lamb. And indeed, John says he only sees one throne. It's not two thrones. Right? It's not like a big throne and a little throne sitting off to the side, like perhaps maybe we might think of in the Daniel 7 passage, or maybe even in David's vision, where he says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. When By the time we get to John, the Lamb is seen occupying a spot that John describes as one throne. So, where is the Lamb? Is he sitting on his Father's lap? Right? Is he, is he one with God in essence? And that's John's way of describing this one nature, but dual um, person, or um, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the, the representation of God, uh, the manifestation of God, the, um, the, the, pers- the person of God. There's a technical term, but I just can't remember it off the top of my head. So we'll, we'll draw our study to a close with this. Next week, what I'll begin to do is I'll begin to start looking through some of these Christian commentaries. I think I might finish this next week if I read through these fairly quickly and don't um, dilly-dally. Otherwise, this will just keep going as time needs. We'll read through this commentary from the Bible Made Plain, How Do the Scribes Alter Psalm 110. We'll read through Pastor David Guzik's commentary on Psalm 110, at least verse 1, maybe also verse 5. We'll read another pass, another commentary from Dr. Michael Brown, where he answers the objection to Psalm 110, where the rabbinic Jews say that Psalm 10 does not say the Messiah is Lord, and Dr. Brown, Dr. Michael Brown, who is a premier Messianic Jewish apologist, he's going to answer in the affirmative that yes, Psalm 10 does say the Messiah is Lord and the implications. There's an article that I pulled from Tim Haig about the sacred name where it talks about Adoni and Adonai and gives us some more background behind uh, this issue. Tim Haig also has a commentary in the book of Matthew, and since we quoted Matthew 22, we could pull notes from there if we need to, to see if there's some insights. Lastly, there's a blog from non from a non-scholarly perspective that I thought I'd bring in so that you can see it's not always necessary to approach this topic from the scholarly view. We can just glean what we need from the layman's perspective. Psalm 110, 1, the significance the significance of Adoni and variants. And then the last two resources, Psalm 110 Reconsidered um, by this professor, Associate Professor of Old Testament Reform Theological Seminary, Washington, D.C. talks about Psalm 110 and some of the uh, implications of the human Jesus versus the divine Jesus. And then the final article, Adoni or Ado, Adonai or Adoni, we do know. And this is a final effort from almost a non-Trinitarian perspective. The the website is from thehumanjesus.org. Their final last-ditch effort to show that, yes, it's a human Jesus. I'm just kind of spoiling it for you if you want to go back and read it on your own, but otherwise, there it is. Adonai, we do know their conclusion is, yes, it is a human. It's Adonai, because the Masoretic tradition tells us so. So, um tells us so so yeah that was really bad let's conclude our study tonight we'll pick this up next week and just finalize uh using these commentaries but that'll do it for a trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism let's close in prayer i bless your name and what a fantastic study we have undertaken it is um infinitely difficult without the help of the holy spirit 
both the Trinitarian study as well as the eschatology study. Lord, these are topics that it is it's basically impossible to comprehend them in a in in a really significant manner without the the help of the Ruach Hakodesh who authored these writings, these the scriptures that we hold dear, that we hold to be sacred. Thank you for preserving the text, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to interact with them and to memorize them and to meditate on them and to put them in our heart so that you can activate the words by your spirit and cause us to be stronger in our faith, to be anchored in our uh, resolution to uh, keep our eyes focused on you and to trust in you despite what's happening in the world around us during these very dark days as the second coming of Messiah draws close. Help us, Lord, to be circumspect, to uh, walk as wise, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the days, bef- redeeming the time for the days are evil. I'm kind of paraphrasing a passage from the New Testament. But thank you for this mandate to take this gospel around the world to anyone who has a heart to hear and ears to hear to receive this good news that can save their very soul. Give us holy boldness as we go. Uh, Continue to bless us and to protect us and to provide for us as a good father does. And we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen.